The sermon text for today is Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. The Old Testament reading is Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12. Uh, You'll notice that I have read often from Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48 over the past couple of weeks. Uh, The reason is that that section of Scripture clearly stands behind the vision shown to John and recorded for us in Revelation 21 and 22. Uh, Long before the first coming of Christ, Ezekiel the prophet was shown something of what would happen at the end of time. He was shown a vision of a temple and a city. Uh, The book of Revelation picks up that vision and makes clear that these visions, the vision shown to Ezekiel, will be fulfilled not in some millennium, but in the new heavens and new earth when Christ returns. And so let us now turn our attention to the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, clear, and authoritative word. Ezekiel writes in Ezekiel 47.1, Then he, that is the angel, brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and the other. And he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the waters will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish." For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so that everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea, from Ingedi to Inglam, excuse me, it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea, but its swamps and marshes will not become fresh, they are to be left for salt. And on the banks of On both sides of the river there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water from them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for healing. Let us go now to Revelation chapter 22 and read verses 1 through 5. Revelation 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. 
They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. So far the reading of God's holy word and our prayer is that the Lord would bless the preaching of it today. These first five verses of Revelation 22 serve as a conclusion to the section that began at Revelation 21.1. In this section, which runs from 21.1 through 22.5, we are shown something about the new heavens and new earth that will be established after Christ returns. When Christ returns, many things will happen in brief. Those not in Christ will be judged and confined to the lake of fire. Whereas those who have faith in Christ, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, will take possession of their eternal reward. And what is that eternal reward? It is the new heavens and the new earth. In this place, the new heavens and the new earth, death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Revelation 24, 21.4 This place will be perfectly pure. Nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life, Revelation 21, 27. And this place will be perfectly secure. In the vision shown to John, the new heavens and earth are symbolized by a city with walls exceedingly high and and thick. In reality, I do not expect to see walls surrounding the new heavens and the new earth. I do not think there will be walls in the new creation. But in the vision shown to John, the symbolism of high and thick walls is unmistakably clear. The walls signify security. This place will be perfectly secure for all eternity. This fully established kingdom of Christ will be everlasting. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed, Daniel seven fourteen. But what characteristic will make the new heavens and earth truly heavenly? What characteristic will make the new heavens and earth truly heavenly? More than the abolition of sickness, suffering, and death, more than the perfect purity and eternal security of the place, it will be God with us that will make the new heavens and earth truly heavenly. Indeed, His glory will fill all. He will be our God and we will be His people. He will dwell in the midst of us for all eternity in a most immediate way. And by that I mean we will be in His presence. We will experience His glory immediately and without mediation. So just as the honeymoon is not ultimately about the destination, is it? But about the person you are now with, so too the new heavens and earth are less about the place, but the fact that we will be with God and He will be with us. The place is not unimportant, mind you. Indeed, the place is is glorious and we are to look forward to the place. But the emphasis here is that the place will have been prepared for us so that we might enjoy the presence of God in it. Christ Himself said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to 
myself, he says, that where I am, you may be also. Do you hear the emphasis? The place will be glorious, and we may look forward to it rightly. But the thing that makes the place heavenly and glorious and splendid and to be desired is that there we will be with God and with Christ. He will dwell with us in a most immediate way. Uh, To put it differently, in the new heavens and earth, heaven and earth will become one. In the new heavens and earth, heaven and earth will become one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Where's that verse found? Genesis 1.1. We'll study it carefully in in the weeks to come. I'm I'm very much looking forward to our study through the book of Genesis as I'm preparing for it. It's going to be very important and rich for us, I think. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What does that mean? Except that in the beginning, God created two realms. I will not prove it right now, we'll prove it in the weeks to come. But in the beginning, God created two realms. He created the heavenly realm and also the earthly realm. Uh, The heavenly realm is that place where the angels reside. It is the place where God does even now manifest His glory in a most pronounced way. It is the place that the prophets of old were from time to time given a glimpse of. Listen to Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died. I think my first sermon ever preached was on this passage. It's, it's, very, um, it's, it's a very fond passage to me. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. And above Him stood the seraphim, each having six wings, and with two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. What did Isaiah see there? What is he describing to us? Except the heavenly realm where God is enthroned, where His glory is manifest or shown, and where angels do worship Him continuously day and night. It is the the heavenly realm that Isaiah was given a glimpse of. John the Apostle also saw visions of this heavenly place. Remember all the way back to Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After this, John says, I looked and behold a door standing open in, in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit and behold, a throne stood where? In heaven, in that heavenly spiritual realm created by God where His glory dwells, where the angels do worship Him continuously. And one was seated on the throne and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper, And carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald, etc. John was shown a vision of this heavenly realm. These two instances of visions of the heavenly realm where God's glory is manifest and angels do worship Him continually are helpful to us. They remind us that, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We could pile up examples from the Holy Scriptures where men on earth are provided a glimpse of this heavenly and spiritual realm, which is typically invisible to us. It is the place created by God in the beginning where His glory is concentrated and continuously manifest. It is not that God is confined to that place, though. 
It is not that he is confined to this heavenly realm which he has created. Indeed, he is omnipresent, is he not? He is all places at all times, which means uh, that he is with us even now and before us even now. And indeed, he has also manifest his glory on earth from time to time in human history. But what I am saying here is that this heavenly realm is where God's glory is manifest in a most pronounced and concentrated way. I think Isaiah chapter 66 verse 1 puts it most succinctly and beautifully when Isaiah the prophet records the words of the Lord for us. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Is he present with us here? Indeed he is. But where does his glory reside? Where is his throne now? Where do the angels surround that throne and worship him continually? That is happening in the heavenly realm, which is invisible to us presently, though the Lord graciously did give men a glimpse of it from time to time throughout human history. They are in heaven, a spiritual realm invisible to us now. But when Christ returns, but when Christ returns, that heaven, that is the third heaven, as Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians 12, 2, In other words, it's the third heaven. It's not the sky above us, nor is it the place where the stars are, but the heaven that resides beyond that, the invisible spiritual realm. Um, That heaven and this earth, when you go outside, look at this earth. This earth, I don't need to describe this earth to you, do I, for this physical universe that God has created in six days. We're well acquainted with it. But those Two realms, heaven and earth, will become one. The dividing line between them will be erased so that the glory of God as it is now in heaven will fill the earth. It will be the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, Let me prove the point to you from this passage here in uh, Revelation and by looking at other places in, in the book of Revelation as well. First of all, notice how the same glory of God that John saw in earlier visions emanating from the throne of God in heaven is in chapters 21 and 22 described as filling the whole of creation. Do you understand the point here? John was at other times given a vision of the glory of God in the heavenly realm when he was shown that vision of God's throne and the angels surrounding it. But when he comes to describe the new heavens and new earth, he does say that that glory will fill All, we have an emphasis upon that here in chapters 21 and 22. Compare Revelation 4, 1 through 6, which is John's description of a vision of the heavenly throne room of God filled with the glory of God, with Revelation 21, 9 through 27. We will not do it now. You can do it on your own. Revelation 4, 1 through 6. Compare it with Revelation 21, 9 through 27 which is a description of the new heavens and new earth. And it is hard to miss the point. The glory of God that fills the heavenly realm now will, at the consummation, fill all of the new creation. Heaven and earth will become one. Secondly, notice how the throne of God itself, which up to this point has been seen only in heaven, is in this passage said to be situated in the midst of the new heavens and new earth. The word throne appears 47 times in the book of Revelation. In most instances, it is referring to God's throne in heaven. 
But here in 22.1 and also verse 3, the throne of God is now seen where? It is seen by John on earth. It is situated in the midst of the city, which in the vision symbolizes the new heavens and the new earth. God, God's throne then has shifted from being centered in heaven to being at the center of the new heavens and the new earth. In Revelation 22.1, we read, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Where is this river? It is flowing through the streets of the city, which is symbolic of the new heavens and the new earth. In verse 3 we read, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. What will the throne of God and of the Lamb be in? The throne will be situated in it, which refers to the city, which symbolizes the new heavens and the new earth. In other words, what is true of the heavenly realm now will at the consummation be true of the whole of the new creation. There is nothing impure in heaven now where God is seated in glory. There is no sickness nor death in that place. All who are there of angels and men do worship God continuously. His glory fills all. This is the heavenly reality as it exists even now, though it be invisible to us. But when Christ returns, this will become the reality of the new creation. Heaven and earth will become one. God will dwell in the midst of His people, not in some soulish spiritual realm, but in the new heavens and earth. His glory will fill all. He will be worshipped and served by angels and men, and this place will be kept pure. Nothing unclean will ever enter into it. So what is true now of the heavenly realm will be true of the new heavens and earth when Christ returns. Put just a little bit differently, the current order of things is that heaven is God's throne and the earth is His footstool, Isaiah 66.1. But in the new heavens and earth, the throne of God will be on earth and in the midst of us. Do you remember how a few years ago I tried to drive into your minds uh, the idea that the whole of human history can be divided up into five successive stages organized around the principle of the kingdom of God. Does anyone remember that? I hope that you do. I was so repetitive there. I think you grew tired of hearing it. I, I was trying to lay foundations that we could build upon as a congregation for years and years to come. The kingdom of God, that is God's rule and reign in the midst of His people, is indeed a central and organizing principle found throughout the pages of Holy Scripture. When we talk about a kingdom, we should think of three things. When you hear the word kingdom, what should you think of? What what ingredients are needed in order to make a kingdom a kingdom? Well, first of all, a kingdom needs a king. Wouldn't you agree with that? And then a a kingdom also needs... Uh, subjects or citizens. If you just have a king, you do not have a kingdom. You only have a king. But when there is a king and when there are subjects or citizens, we're getting closer now to, to having a kingdom. But there also must be something else. There also must be a realm or a territory in order for a kingdom to exist. And so these three things are needed. A king, citizens of that kingdom, and a realm or territory. The whole of human history can be described as the establishment of God's kingdom where He, the King, 
dwells in the midst, do you hear the language of place or territory, of his people. The whole of human history can be described as the establishment of God's kingdom where he, the king, dwells in the midst of his people. And what are the five successive stages that, le- that will lead to the establishment of this kingdom? First, the kingdom was offered to Adam and Eve. It was offered to them. I say that it was offered to them and not experienced by them because Eden was a place of testing for those two. Everything in that, that narrative points to the conclusion that when Adam and Eve, ex- what they experienced in that garden was not the end goal It was not the final and full establishment of the kingdom offered to them. It was a place of testing. There were two trees in that place. Do you remember? The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam was given a task. He was to fill the earth and he was to keep the garden. He was to, like his maker, finish his work and enter into Sabbath rest. To succeed meant life and rest. To fail would mean death and toil. And what do we know except for that Adam failed to accomplish this task given to him by his maker? The kingdom of God was offered to him, but never did he attain it. Adam rebelled against God as king. He obeyed another master who then began to rule in this world. Do you hear, though, the emphasis upon kingdom here? Was Adam God's servant for a time? Yes, but he never laid a hold of the end goal. That is, the kingdom of God filling all of Earth, where he would forever and ever dwell in the midst of his people. Secondly, the kingdom of God was then promised to Adam and Eve. Uh, This, of course, was an act of sheer grace. God was not obligated to, to give the gift of his kingdom to man. He could have simply abandoned man or judged him at that point, finally. But he promised to do it. He would establish his kingdom, not through Adam, but through another representative, namely the Christ. In due time, the Christ would come. He would be born of the woman. He would succeed where Adam failed. He would obey God perfectly and would stomp the head of the serpent who did at first tempt Adam and Eve. This kingdom he would establish in the fullness of time. But the promise of it was made even in the hearing of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve heard this promise. The first promise concerning the establishment of this kingdom is found not in the New Testament, but all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God pronounced the curse upon the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so this promise was like a seed that would sprout and grow throughout the Old Testament period. Until when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. The kingdom of God was promised shortly after it was offered and then refused by Adam and Eve. It was promised shortly after the fall. Thirdly, the kingdom of God was prefigured. The promise of the kingdom was preserved by Adam and Eve. They had the gospel. And they also preached the gospel. And so did some of their descendants. They believed upon it. They preserved the gospel. They preached the gospel. This promise of the kingdom was preserved by them. And it was propagated throughout their descendants. Seth, Enoch, Lamech, and Noah preserved the promise. So too did Shem and Terah and Abram. 
And this promise concerning the coming of the Christ would also be preserved by Moses and David and the prophets after them, to name just a few. But something unique was done when God called Abram out of the, from the nations and promised to make a nation out of him. His offspring would go to Egypt and would be enslaved there. Then God would raise up a man named Moses who would speak God's word to Pharaoh and he would say to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh would in due time, being coerced by the mighty hand and outstretched arm of God, let Israel go. They went into the wilderness. There they wandered for 40 years. After that, they would take the land of promise. A nation was therefore born out of nothing. God brought it into existence. And this nation was utterly unique. Never was there anything like it before nor after. These were God's chosen people. Everything about them, their laws and their worship, was to prefigure the kingdom of God that was offered and then promised long ago. Listen carefully to what I've just said. Everything about them, that is the nation of Israel, their laws and their worship, was to prefigure the kingdom of God that was offered first to Adam and Eve and forfeited and then promised to them and also to Abraham, Abraham after them. Uh, long ago. Uh, The glory, think of it for a moment, the glory of God dwelt in the midst of Israel, did it not? The glory of God dwelt in the midst of Israel. I hope you know your Old Testament here because I can't take the time to flesh all of this out for you. Sinai, glory of God falling upon it. Tabernacle, temple, Shekinah, glory of God. Pillar of Fire in the wilderness. Spirit of God, the glory of God felt, uh, filled Israel. Why? Because it was a prefigurement of the kingdom of God fully established and in, in, in uh, in, in consummated. God was their king. They were his people and they were given a land. They were given a place. And in that land, one city became most significant, the city of Jerusalem. And in that city, a temple would be built To house God. Does God need a house? He doesn't need a house. It's an act of condescension. It's God coming to dwell in the midst of His people. The scriptures are abundantly clear, though, that the land of Israel, the city of Jerusalem, and the temple of stone were not the end goal of God's plan of redemption. Far from it. Those earthly things were but a shadow of, of heavenly realities, and pointed forward to greater things yet to come. Read the book of Hebrews if you want proof of this. The promise concerning Christ and His kingdom was preserved and also prefigured in the nation of Israel, and their nation, their laws, their worship. Everything about Israel, the laws, the land, the city, the temple, and the worship that was conducted there before the glory of God functioned Typologically, it was real. Indeed, God's glory was real and their worship was real. And that nation did indeed indeed contain within it people who truly approached God in faith. But it also pointed forward to greater realities yet to come, things more substantial. The kingdom of God was prefigured in Israel. The glory spirit of God was present in their midst and was working. But a greater outpouring of the spirit was still yet to come. It wasn't until the Christ came that it could be said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven 
is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This was John the Baptist's message, wasn't it? And this was also the message of Jesus. It was at Christ's first coming that the kingdom of God was here in power. It was there at His first coming that the kingdom was inaugurated, that it did, that it did begin. This is the fourth of the five successive stages that will lead to the establishment of the kingdom of God. Kingdom inaugurated. What can we say about this period of time then, this stage? Uh, For starters, the Spirit of God was poured out like never before at this time. The Spirit of God was poured out like never before. The Spirit descended upon the Christ and anointed Him beyond measure The Christ was present in the world and he demonstrated his power over the enemies of God. He pronounced the forgiveness of sins. He healed the sick. He made the lame to walk and the blind to see. He raised the dead. The glory of God, like the glory that was present at creation and also the glory with Israel in the wilderness and on Sinai when Moses went up to meet with God, the same glory that filled the most holy place of the tabernacle and later the temple fell on Jesus the Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus was and is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. He was the one to establish God's kingdom, functioning as the great prophet, priest, and king. It was the job that Adam was to do, but Jesus the Christ did it. And after keeping God's law perfectly, after He did suffer and die for His people, paying the price for their redemption to set them free, He did rise from the dead, breaking the power of death itself, that came into the world because of man's rebellion. And then he therefore ascended to the Father's right hand where he is seated now. And what is he seated upon, brothers and sisters? A throne. The kingdom of God was inaugurated then. Behold, repent, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. Indeed, he was seated at his Father's right hand, having all authority in two realms given to him. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. It's then that Satan was bound from heaven, cast out, thrown down. You see, Christ had authority, complete and total authority in those two realms. And all of this was by virtue of his obedient life, his vicarious death, his victorious resurrection. He is the king. And his kingdom is here now. It has been inaugurated. This is such a rapid presentation of these things. I so look forward to our study in the book of Genesis, partly because we're going to take the opposite approach, not looking back from the end, seeing where things have come from, but starting at the beginning, showing how these themes develop and will move much more slowly at that point in time. But the kingdom was inaugurated at Christ's first coming Uh, But you and I know, brothers and sisters, that the kingdom has not been consummated. It has not been consummated. For when we look about us, it is plain that not all is in subjection to Christ. Far from it. Look at the world today. Is the world in subjection to Christ? Are all in the world citizens of His kingdom? Do they have Jesus as Lord? Certainly not. Only some have come to say Jesus is Lord. Only some have been called out of the kingdom of darkness to walk in the kingdom of light. Indeed, the prince of the power of the air is still at work in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2.2. The kingdom of God is here, but not in fullness. 
It is, avan- it is advancing even now, and this is why we pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your kingdom come, in other words, may it advance even more in this world now, and Lord Jesus, come quickly, is what we are praying. The kingdom of God was inaugurated at Christ's first coming, but it is moving on towards the consummation. Now is being accomplished what was revealed long ago through the psalmist when he wrote, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool, Psalm 110.1. Where is the Lord now? He is at the right hand of the Father, but something must happen. His enemies must be made His footstool. That is what is being accomplished now. The Lord Jesus the Christ has sat down at the Lord Lord God's right hand, and now His enemies are being defeated and brought under His feet. Revelation 22.1-5 describes the new heavens and the new earth to us, but in such a way so as to make it plain that it will be the consummation of the kingdom of God. It is the fifth and final stage in the establishment of this kingdom, the consummation of the kingdom of God. Who is the king of this kingdom? God and and His Christ are king. They are seen in this passage enthroned. Are there any rivals in this kingdom when the kingdom is consummated? None at all. None at all. All of their enemies have by then been confined to the lake of fire. Who are the citizens of this kingdom? They are those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. They are the faithful servants of the King. They see His face and His name is on their foreheads. Revelation 22.4 These will reign with Him forever and ever, Revelation 22, 5. And what are the borders of this kingdom? What are the borders of this kingdom? Notice that this kingdom fills all of the new heavens and the new earth. All is kingdom. All is kingdom. All is filled with the glory of God. All is city. All is temple, metaphorically speaking. God will dwell in the midst of us in a most immediate way. All will be filled with His glory forever and ever. This kingdom fills all of the new heavens and the new earth. Adam was to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and subdue it. How far did he get in that task? He was placed in that garden and what was his task? He was to expand it continuously, making sure that in that place, God was Lord, God was King. He Himself was to be obedient, and He was to teach His descendants to do the same. And that garden paradise, which was just a small part of the earth, was to cover all. He didn't make it very far. His first child was born outside of Eden. But Christ has accomplished it. He has done the work that Adam failed to do, and at the end he will receive his reward, and all will also partake of it who belong to him. Indeed, our inheritance will be the new heavens and the new earth, where the glory of God will fill all. All will be kingdom. Here we have a vision of the kingdom consummated at Christ's return. I I can't think of a passage of Scripture that more clearly demonstrates that the whole of Scripture, despite the great diversity we find in it, tells one grand story. Do you see it here? We're near to the end of the book of Revelation, and we are here told that this is all one story. We're taken back to the garden, aren't we, in this passage. Notice 
the language of Eden is all over this passage. The mention of the river running through the city should remind us of the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 2.10, we read that a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers, Genesis 2.10. In Revelation 22.1, we read, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Even more obvious is the mention of the tree of life. Remember that in the middle of the Garden of Eden, there was a tree of life, Genesis 2.9. And in Revelation 22.2, John describes on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so obviously our minds are to go back to Eden when we read this text in Revelation. Indeed, what Christ accomplished as the second Adam through His obedient life, His sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection has reversed the effects that the fall of the first Adam had upon this world. But thanks be to God, brothers and sisters, that the new heavens and the new earth will not be a return to the Garden of Eden. I praise God for this. It will not be a return to the Garden of Eden. The new heavens and the new earth are not Eden. The river is here called the river of life, notice. The river flows directly from the throne of God, which is situated in the midst of this place. That was not said of Eden. And notice most significantly that there is no mention at all of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It is not present in the new heavens and the new earth. In Eden, there were two trees. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eden was a place of testing. The new heavens and earth is a place of consummate rest. Why? Because Christ passed the test for us. Notice that the tree of life is said to produce 12 kinds of fruit Here we are to think of the Ezekiel 47 passage that was read earlier, where in verse 12 we read, And on the banks on both sides of the river there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Here uh, John picks up upon that, and the vision shown to him picks up upon that. Uh, Where Ezekiel saw many kinds of trees, John saw one kind of tree. It is the tree of life, lining the river and producing 12 kinds of fruit, one per month. Uh, The idea is that God will supply an abundance of life for His people forever and ever. He will give them water to drink, and He will give them food to eat to sustain them, spiritually speaking, for all eternity Notice that the leaves of these trees will be for the healing of the nations, Revelation 22.2. What is described here is like nothing the world has ever known before. Adam and Eve did not even experience what is described here in the garden prior to the fall. It will be as new for Adam and Eve as it will be for us. This is the thing that was offered to Adam but he failed to attain it. Never did they lay a hold of this consummate, secure, and eternal rest. Jesus the Christ earned it. He earned it for himself, 
and also for all who believe upon his name. Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? That is the question we must ask as we consider these things. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We thank you for your grace and your mercy shown to us. Lord, you would have done no wrong to simply judge us, to leave us, that is humanity, in our sin and to suffer the consequences of it, having broken your covenant. But you are gracious, Lord. You have called some to yourself. You have sent a Savior in fulfillment to the promise made even to Adam and Eve long ago. He is Jesus the Christ. We thank you for your mercy and grace shown to us that you have provided a way for us to have salvation and to enter into this new heavens and new earth. We thank you for Christ Jesus our Lord who kept the terms of the covenant. He obeyed your law perfectly. Never did he sin. He did what you required him to do. He never did what you forbid him to do. And then he did go to that cross and he laid down his life, not because he deserved to die, but he died for others. And we thank you, Lord, for Christ Jesus. We look to him. Indeed, all of our hope is found in him. We thank you for what he has laid a hold of, eternal life, the new heavens, the new earth. It is his reward, Lord. And as we cling to him, we thank you that we also benefit from it. We are heirs with Christ. We are heirs with him being made to be sons and daughters of God, along with Christ Jesus through faith in Him. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that they would look forward to this new heavens and new earth and that they would store up their treasures in that place and not here on earth. I pray also for those who do not yet know Christ, who are still in Adam, who are simply descendants of His and who are under the curse that He brought upon this world and upon all humanity. Lord, I pray that You would open their eyes to see their sin. May they see what their sins do deserve and may they also see the glory of Christ Jesus and come to believe in Him. Holy Spirit, we pray that You would move upon them. May they look to Christ and cling to Him and have Him as Lord and may they enjoy the benefits that come with that. Spirit of God, we do pray that You would work. As Your kingdom has been inaugurated, Lord, we pray that it would advance that your kingdom would grow in this world, that your church would grow, that more and more would be brought into it. And Lord, we, your people, do say, come quickly. Amen.